Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. On today's show, I interviewed Helen Joyce, an Irish journalist, feminist, and executive editor at The Economist in Britain. During our chat, we talked at length about her best-selling book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Joyce said that in her book and in other public statements that she's looking to help, not hurt. My intention is not to be unkind to trans people, she said, but to prevent greater unkindness. We talk at length about safe spaces like rape clinics, domestic violence centers, and female prisons, and why biological men are not invited. We also discuss the long history of feminism and their decades-long struggle for women's liberation. And of course, we discuss the controversial topics of trans females competing against natal females in competitive sports. Please note, we got a bit carried away and talked for over two and a half hours. So this is part one of a two-part interview. I hope you learned as much as I did. Oh, and you will never watch The Matrix again without thinking of trans ideology. Trust me. Well, here we are, Helen Joyce. Thank you so much for joining me on True 30 today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated your time um, and being introduced by our mutual friend in Australia. And uh, we got a little bit of time to chat, to chat early on. So I wanted to just frame our discussion specific to your wonderful book, which for those of you who are watching, this is Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. And it's a best-selling book. And it's on all of Twitter now, all over the world. You are everywhere. And I know you just went uh, on another live television broadcast on Tuesday. And so every time I turn on, because I now have hooked you in with my online stuff, so I see everything Helen Joyce is doing. And uh, the way I think we can talk about your wonderful book is, as people know, and I think even people in Britain know, that we have Ketanji Brown-Jackson is about to be confirmed um, as our next Supreme Court justice today around one o'clock, uh, I think, Eastern time here in the United States. And most of us are over the moon happy. She's probably the most qualified candidate we've ever had. She seems to be an absolutely wonderful human being. And yet, <laughs> during the Senate confirmation hearings, um, she had a lot of vitriol thrown her way. And so I wanted to kind of start with that because on February 22nd, she sat for her Supreme Court confirmation hearings, and she was questioned by Senator Blackburn, Marsha Blackburn. And I just want to be clear with the listeners, this is exactly what she talked about. And it actually is tangential to what we'll be talking about for the next hour or so, is that she referenced the university, U.S. versus Virginia, the Supreme Court against Virginia Military Institute, male-only admission policy. Writing for the majority, Justice Ginsburg stated, supposed inherent differences are no longer accepted as a grounds for race or national origin classifications. Physical differences between men and women, however, are endearing. The two sexes are not fungible. 
a community made up of exclusivity of one sex is different from a community composed of both. And then the famous question that was heard all over the world was, do you interpret Justice Ginsburg meaning of men and women as male and female? And she said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, let me ask you this. Can you provide a definition of the word woman? And in our culture today, that is a really big question. And so I thought she was very astute and saying, no, I can't. And she said, you can't? <laughs> not in this context. I'm not a biologist. And so that is a really good start because that is one of the things where in a culture like ours today, and I know that it happens in Britain and <laughs> all over the, the world right now, is there's this big discussion about, is there any real difference between men and women? How do we even talk about that? I know that feminist definitions are adult female human is the next derivative of that. And uh, so, you know, our culture, I think, is a little bit behind you guys. And I don't know, again, some of the homework I've done in Australia and Britain. It seems like you guys are a little bit ahead of us on this curve. How long has this been part of your life? And, and why did you decide to write this book? I mean, personally, it's been part of my life since 2017, which was when an editor said to me, um, why do the kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans? And I said, literally no idea. Do you want me to find out? And here I am five years later, uh, having taken a leave of absence from my job at The Economist to work with an advocacy organisation, Sex Matters, for a while, uh, having written this book, um, really spending an inordinate amount of my time saying the word penis. Uh, we're more blunt than you are here in, in Britain, Irish, but, uh, you know, we don't just say, what is a woman? Politicians here are constantly asked, uh, can a woman have a penis? I don't know that it was a smart answer. I know why. I know why she tried to sidestep it, because no matter what she said, she was going to get attacked. But if you listen to her answer, it wasn't just evasive. It showed that she hadn't actually understood what the issue is. When she said, I'm not a biologist... If you're one of the people who doesn't think adult human female is a good enough answer, well, a biologist can't help you because the biologist's answer is adult human female. So even mm -hmm. by saying biologist, she showed that she didn't understand where this toxic issue has gone. I don't blame her for that. Who'd want to understand that? I think she should have said uh, the words in flux. Um, different communities mean different things. Obviously, in material reality, it means adult human female. But it's also used by some people as a, an identity term, and that's much more um, contested and difficult. And I can't really define that because that definition seems to be moving all the time or something like that. She would have had her own spin on it. The fact that she referenced biologists suggests to me that she knows perfectly well the meaning of the word until a half a second ago was <laughs> those of us who were conceived female and didn't die before we grew up. Right. Well, I think part of that for me on the political side, and that's kind of where I thought it was astute in the sense that the questions would have kept coming. And if she lost one senator on the left, she was in trouble. And I think that's where, if you get a progressive senator that says, oh, now you're railing against trans people, you're, you know, I, and I don't know, I was just pontificating in my own head about that. Yeah, no, maybe she's right. I'm not, I'm not following American politics as closely as you are. Um, I know that it's not the right answer when people give it here, because when you evade a straightforward question like that here, it just guarantees that every journalist who ever sees you ever <laughs> keep asking it. So Keir right. Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, is never going to have an interview that doesn't include the question, can a woman have a penis, until he answers it in a more sensible way than he has. Yeah, well... You've gotten tons and tons of good praise for this. The Sunday Times bestseller, 
Thank goodness for Helen Joyce was the Sunday Times, a tour de force by the Evening Standard. You had tons and tons of good reviews. And, and I attempted to look at everything I could specific to any derogatories. And the big one that I thought would be, you actually have far less than I anticipated. Because I, I know from some of our conversations and then some of the conversations just in trans in general, it is such a divisive conversation that it's full, full of emotion and attacks and vitriol and awful. Uh, the one thing that I thought it was um, a excerpt from Nathan Robinson, which I'm sure you've read this excerpt. And he opens you up and says, there's this wretched, rancid new book by an editor of The Economist, Helen Joyce, as he's talking to Julie Serrano. And do you want to talk a little bit about Julie Serrano and her approach? Because she said in her, her actual rebuttal for yours, she says, well, I looked through some of her book, but she didn't even read it. And so that for me, that always chaps my hide when someone wants to make a review of anything and didn't do the homework. Because your book, whether you read an excerpt from something out of context, specifically if you have a very concretized point of view, it really doesn't make any sense, or it's at least not a good faith debate. So I just wanted to at least ask you what you thought of that, because she is a noted biologist and a researcher and someone who disagrees with almost everything you've said. How do you, how do you square that circle? So I don't think it's right to say that Julia Serrano disagrees with me. I, I think it hasn't actually reached that point. Okay. I mean, factually, like the factual things that I say in the book, that humans are mammals, yeah. we come in two types because we're mammals, male and female, those things aren't in dispute by anybody serious, by anybody really. I mean, it's probably even rarer to dispute that than it would be to dispute, you know, that the earth is round or something like that. These things are really fundamental. If you, if you think that humans don't come in two types, male and female, you are an evolution denialist. You know, you are really on a par with creationism. Right. So people like Julia Serrano, um, who is not someone I've ever spoken to directly, they're doing something different. They're, they're creating... Um, in the book, I tried to explain it, although, again, not with reference specifically to Serrano, as they're creating the world as they would wish it to be, which is fine. Everyone has the right to say how they would like to see the world. And then they're claiming that's the world that is. So if you're somebody who doesn't like your sex, if you're somebody who feels very strongly that your sex is wrong, that you weren't meant to be the sex that you actually are, it's very appealing to find a way to imagine a world in which that sex is in some sense not real, that the social mm -hmm. role that you, you inhabit is preeminent over that sex or, and, you know, to pick random things that aren't actually connected, like that there are things that are called intersex conditions. It's a stupid name for, for developmental disorders of the, the genitalia and gonads. But anyway, you know, you pick these things like, like the way anti-vaxxers talk, you know, if you, if you mm -hmm. complain about something over here, they'll just jump to something over there. You know, they'll start by saying that the vaccine was developed too quickly. And then when you rebut that, they'll come over here to something about, you know, blood plasma in children or something. It, it's a bit like that. It's a very magpie sort of thing. But fundamentally, Julia Serrano isn't going head to head with me. I'm starting from you know, fundamental facts that no serious person can disagree with. And I'm trying to make a logical argument on the basis of those. Sex is real. Yeah. That makes male and female people different. That has consequences for male and female people and for children. What are those consequences? How do they play out in certain arenas, like in education, like in the sort of spaces that we segregate by sex, like in sport, 
And, and the book works that way. It starts from a premise and it works forward. But people like Serrano are starting with an end point, which is they want to be in a world where sex doesn't act like that. And they're describing that world as if it's real and, and ignoring anything that contradicts them. So I don't think there's a meaningful conversation to be had because as soon as I would start by saying, well, look, do you agree that we're mammals and that mammals are male and female and that people can't change sex? Like no serious biologist could disagree with that, but somehow right. I think Serrano would just say, well, I mean something different by male and female when I'm talking about humans. Well, I don't, you know? So what do we going <laughs> do if, if this person is using male and female to mean something different for humans than from any other animal or plant? And I'm saying, no, I mean the same thing for humans as in every other animal or plant. How can a conversation proceed? It's like we talked about, it's, it's, it's like we were talking about um, global warming. And I start by saying, well, you know, do you accept that we are producing carbon dioxide and putting it into the atmosphere? And they said, ah, but I don't mean the same by carbon dioxide as you do. Right. You know, I include argon and nitrogen under the heading carbon dioxide. And I'm like, well, we can't have a conversation then. We don't agree on the fundamental terms. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think in that argument, and separate of Julie, but a lot of people like Judith Butler and other folks in that space, they talk about intersex as being the proof that the sex specifically is on a continuum. It's on a spectrum. And numbers around that in your book, they claim up to 1.7% of our population. And that is actually a really big argument from progressives here in the United States. I've had that discussion with people 1.7% is a large number out of 330 million people. And they use the, the actual analogy of it's the same amount as redheads, right? I'm sure you've heard that. So the idea yeah. there is that if you say, and so what I was talking to this young man who, who brought that up to me, I said, all right, what's well, a good point. Is that a statistical anomaly if it's that many millions of folks? But what you helped me understand, as well as some of the research I had to, to follow up on, 1.7% is a very broad number specific to numerous uh, DSDs, uh, developmental sexual disorders. And it includes anything from one testicle to one ovary to a, a smattering of different things. So that collective got really big. And so how, how do you guys then, as researchers and, and people of your ilk, how do you then, how do you combat that question? Because I'm curious on the intersex yeah. term. So it's, it's, again, I keep thinking this, that it's very like trying to counter anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Because they're not they're not arguing in good faith. Because every time you counter one thing, they've already decided the outcome they want to have. Like they 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 know they want to get to a point where male and female aren't real things. And if you disagree with them in one way, or you prove that one argument is wrong, they jump to another. And also, yeah. the simple lie takes much shorter time to say than the compli complex truth. So it's worth giving an example on this one. Uh, the one point seven percent. That is a figure that rolls up, not really only just disorders of sexual development, um, disorders of sex development, I mean, but actually some conditions that are things that manifest in most, most of it's this, by the way, conditions that manifest in teen years where the hormonal balance isn't right. So that doesn't actually okay. raise any question of what sex somebody is. That gets rid of almost all of them. Now you're left with about 0.2%. Almost all, wow. that, yeah, almost all that 0.2% is one particular condition in which the penis doesn't develop completely properly. Uh, so the opening to the penis is not in the right place. So you get rid of that one because obviously, you know, having the opening to your penis in the wrong place is not um, a condition that makes you a girl or makes you halfway between a boy or a girl or anything like that. You get rid of those two and you're down to, you know, the one in a thousand, the one in less than a thousand. 
And again, you go through these conditions and each of them is a sex specific condition. Each of them is a condition that either male or female people have. Mm-hmm. And most of them, so I have a friend who has um, a, a particular DSD, and it's called MRKH. It's the name of four scientists, the four scientists who named it. And it's a very a very distressing DSD. Um, basically, her uterus didn't develop. Her sex organs are all completely normal, but her uterus is just a little stub. So this makes her unable to have a baby. And it also was something she didn't discover until she was in her teens and her periods didn't start. She actually has a menstrual cycle. It's normal but she doesn't have a uterus to shed its lining. So she found out as a teenager um, when she went to her doctor and said, why have my periods not started? And she had to have scans and so on. And then there was a lot of shame around it and a lot of sadness. She was about 16 by this time and she was 16 and discovering she was never going to be a mother. And then she discovers that there are idiots out there who call this condition an intersex condition and think that it makes her somewhere between a boy and a girl. She's a woman whose uterus hasn't developed. So these people have been instrumentalized in this incredibly upsetting way. So you see, this has taken me five minutes and it took them, you know, 30 seconds to say 1.7% as many people as red hair. The red hair one, can I just say, by the way, it's a lot more than 1.7% in Ireland and it's a lot less if you're in Bangladesh. So what the hell? Can we not be so culturally ridiculous and and US-centric on this? But you know what? I've made a mistake in even telling you this. I'm just telling you this to give you an example. If I were talking to an anti-vaxxer, that's the equivalent of me explaining, actually, do you know what? It wasn't actually a very fast development of vaccine because everything was speeded through, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be telling you stuff about, you know, the FDA and how they do it in Europe and blah, blah, blah. Mistake. Because the anti-vaxxer is listening to you preparing for the next argument, Right. right? Actually, all I need to say to you is male and female are fundamental biological terms to do with reproduction in all but a few, like in all but like basic organisms like fungi and bacteria and so on. There are two sexes and only two. And the way we know there are only two is because that's how reproduction works. You know, you need a male and a female or you need, you know, male and female body parts or male and female um, gametes. That's what we call eggs and sperm in humans. And for there to be a third sex, there would have to be a third gamete because sexes are functional terms. I I don't know that I'm female because I look and I'm a bit curvy and my voice hasn't broken. I know I'm female because my body developed along the path that leads to the female role in reproduction. Now, actually, I'm infertile if my children are up by IVF because I bet you there's some people listening and saying, um, ah, but what about infertile women? I'm also in my 50s, so I've left over my, left, left my fertile period behind. My point isn't that I right now am capable of reproducing. My point is my body developed along one of two reproductive pathways, and those two reproductive pathways evolved to support the two reproductive roles. There are only two. There cannot be a third sex unless there's a third gamete. So the argument's just stupid. You see what I mean about how I say I yeah. can't have this discussion even. Over there, there's somebody who's talking nonsense about red hair. And over here, I'm saying these words are <laughs> fundamental words that we can't talk about evolution without mentioning them. We can't mess around with the meaning of these words. They're so important. I agree. And, and you kind of opened up in your book with Dr. Richard Green and his case studies in the, I think it was the 80s. And he had yeah, a... 70s, I think. Yeah. Okay. And the, the sissy boy syndrome. And, and the one thing that stood out for me, and you talk about this a little bit, is that if you look at a lot of the studies that you referenced and some of the other ones I referenced, specifically 20, 30 years ago, 
There was 139 boys in a Toronto study between 1975 and 2000. Two-thirds of them satisfied the clinical criteria for gender dysphoria. And 90% of them, after puberty, did not feel this dysphoria anymore, most of which found out they were homosexual. Yeah. And this isn't most of the research you funneled through your book talks to that. And and 30 years ago, this was very different. We had, well, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like it's just gotten so much power. There's so much movement from someone is, you know, back in the day, like Dr. Green, who was analyzing this through, I think, a, a very clinical lens, to your point, male and female, let's figure out what's going on there. How is this, how is this conversation between gender and sex affecting kids today? And then what's happening within that? Because that's, I think, a that's big piece of your book. Yeah. 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 So I would just, to wrap up on the intersex thing, even if there were people who were not classifiable as male or female, that would tell you nothing about the trans experience because the trans experience is being uncomplicatedly of one sex or the other and not accepting that, not liking it, not feeling at home with it, feeling strongly identified with the other sex. People use very, lots of people use different words for it, but fundamentally trans people are one sex or the other, the same as everybody else. So there's not, you know, these intersex conditions that I'm telling you aren't really what they sound like. They aren't even more common in trans people than other people, right? Okay. So they're a total red herring. It's like going down, you know, some route about... I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about what anti-vaxxers say to keep using my favourite analogy. But anyway, it's just <laughs> a red herring. It's just there to confuse. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with it. So now we come back to sex. So I was lucky enough to meet Richard Green before he died. He died a couple of years ago, but I met him in London in, I think, 2018. He was long into retirement by then. And he said to me, where did this all come from? This is insane, yeah. he said, you know. Like he was he was actually very supportive of trans-identified people and he helped to open one of the first gender clinics in the US, like the one at Johns Hopkins. And he was involved in writing the first press release about it. And he was very supportive of people who didn't feel at ease with their sexed bodies. Um, he was also a very early proponent of gay marriage. He gave um, he gave evidence in legal cases about you know how homosexuality wasn't something that should bar you from being a teacher and things like that. Very liberal man, way ahead of his time. But he said to me, nobody would have dreamed of messing around with a child's body or treating a child. What they wanted to know, what he and the others wanted to know in the 1960s and 1970s was. What's the, pre what's the preceding, what's the history of somebody who comes to you as an adult and says, I'm really not meant to be this sex. So I'm a man, but I really don't feel like one. Was that man always like that? Was he born like that? Was he like that as a child? So you can't find that by asking people themselves. And this is no insult whatsoever to trans people. This is always true. You can't ask people, how did you get where you're going? You can try and you can get something from it, but people remember their past in a way that's influenced by the present. But also if you do that, you miss all the people who used to feel the same way and don't anymore, right? Okay. So suppose you had people who um, are CEOs and you go to them and you say, what got you where you are today? They'll tell you about hard work and vision and brilliance and things. But what you don't have in front of you is the people who had hard work, vision and brilliance, but didn't succeed. Right. So you miss that entire picture. The only way you can fix that is by doing what's called a prospective study, which is that you get people before they've set up their companies and follow them and see if you can identify what made those who succeed and those who don't different from each other. 
Would that so study would... start with them young then? Yes. That, that, so okay. Richard Green identified, and um, just by putting up signs in GP surgeries, like um, family doctor surgeries and a couple of other places like that, he identified from memory like 60 or 70 boys, and he called them sissy boys, not because he was trying to be mean to them. I mean, he specifically was trying to comment on the way they were stigmatised. He was very sympathetic, very sympathetic to them and their families. And then he just found some matching kids, because that's the best you could do. He found kids to match each of them in age, socioeconomic circumstance, race, that sort of thing. Another bunch of, like, uncomplicatedly, you know, non-sissy, like masculine boys. And then he just followed them to see what would happen. And what happened was that his so-called sissy boys, all but one of them that he managed to stay in touch with, with no longer identified as a girl, or said they wanted to be a girl, or said they felt like a girl by the time they reached 18. Just one said he still did. He lost touch with some of them, but I think he had 55 of them at the end. Every single other one had accepted himself as a boy or a man, and most of them were gay. Right. So, so what he discovered then, and what he told me at the time, and I've since followed up on it, was that every study since has found the same thing. If you find small children who spontaneously say to you, I, you know, God didn't make, mean to make me a girl, or right. I wasn't meant to be a boy, I shouldn't have a penis. Like these little boys would dress up in their sister's clothes, they would tuck their penises inside their pants, they would... You know, they hated everything boysy. They were super girly. And this isn't just them being a bit gender non-conforming. They were really unusual, these kids. I read the book. It's out of print, but I got a copy. This is not just, you know, a girl who likes rough and tumble. It's a girl who insists she's a boy and insists she's a boy for years. Now, Richard Green only looked at boys, but anyway. So since then, there have been a dozen studies in different countries, different times, different research groups, different methodologies. Every single one of them has found that highly gender non-conforming kids, kids who say that they were meant to be members of the opposite sex, don't mostly grow up to still think that and do mostly grow up to say they're gay. And those are all the same longitudinal studies. They're not just... There's a a variety of methodologies, but this is the most consistent finding by a long way in this field. Like It's very, very suggestive when you've got these over about 30 years, 40 years. The most recent and the best of them was in Toronto and it's only a couple of years old. And it followed every single child at the, the children's clinic. Yeah, that, that was the one I referenced. Yes, and that was 90%. 90% of the kids no longer. 90, yeah. And that, that was published were. in March of 2021. That's right. And that, I mean, that was yeah. a really high quality study. So when you've got all these different studies, some of them were very small, but when you've got them all from different places over different times, over a few decades, people with very different um, intellectual uh, frameworks, every single one points the same direction. You can say that that's flat. If you have kids who say, I was meant to be a boy, or I feel like I am a boy, or I really am a boy inside, or any of those sorts of sentences, and you do not tell that child, oh, that makes you really a boy. Let's cut your hair. Let's change your name. Let's dress you as a boy. Let's tell everyone else you're a boy. If you don't do that, that child will probably, really, very nearly, certainly stop saying it. And they'll do it around uh, before or during the early part of puberty. Wow. And then you also have a guy in there named Ray Blanchard, who kind of a doctor also, who dove into something that helped me understand a little bit more, specifically androphilics versus androgynophilia, which is, I have a hard time with these words, but what is, what is his, what do his studies help you understand better? Because they obviously helped me understand specifically that dynamic between those two. Yeah. So I've often said, and I think it a lot when I look at discourse about trans people and trans identified people, that 
I never see sex more clearly than when I look at people who are denying sex. So trans identified male people and trans identified female people are so unbelievably different. They're more different than male and female people who accept their sex. There's so just everything about them. Like whenever you read about trans identified male people, so trans women, it's mm-hmm. always about, you know, richest female CEO in America, you know, first female pilot, uh, winning a game competition, and then sadly quite a lot of crime reports as well. And they're the crimes that men commit, not the crimes that women commit. Absolutely yeah. hilarious one that I saw here. I mean, not a funny crime, but very funny report. Um, women pushed genitalia through letterbox. So this is a bloke sticking his dick through somebody's letterbox. <laughs> I mean, they tell you women are not able to stick their genitalia through letterboxes. No. You know, life goal, but no. So, so yes, a lot of crimes of the of the sort of men are not women. A lot of flashing, paedophilia, a lot of yeah. violent crimes. So I've got to the point now where I see crime reports that say things like woman runs a muck in supermarket with axe. I'm like, yeah. And then you read it in chapter, in paragraph 10, it says, you know, has been identifying as a woman for two and a half seconds. So, yeah, they're very, 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 very different people. The male people who identify as trans and the female people who identify as trans. But even within those groups, there's differences as well. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, until very recently, the women were really nearly all of them super hyper butch lesbians who just felt that this world is not set up for a woman who is not willing to play the woman game. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I think those, those women understood what sex they were. They just felt that they moved through the world so much better as men. And the testosterone really helped them to pass. So that was basically all the women. That's changed recently okay. with teenage girls. Yeah. The men, I mean, as Ray Blanchard pointed out to me when I interviewed him, the people who have been thinking about trans-identified people from the beginning, from the 1920s and 30s, always recognised that there were different motivations and different types. Right. And the big difference is whether those people are same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted. So most people, if they don't know much about this, they assume that all trans people are homosexual. But they think that what a trans woman is is sort of like a super hyper gay man. So gay that he has to be a woman. I'm just telling you, this is what they say. Like, please don't okay. jump on me for the language. That is literally what they say to you. Um, and, and that's true. I know. I know trans people like that. People who just, just think this world is just not meant for me. I'm so femme. Right. And I'm, I love everything about being a woman. Like one of my friends who's trans, you know, this person is like, is like um, Galadriel from Lord of the Rings. Like <laughs> beautiful long blonde hair, just everything that this person likes is, is that elven princess thing, you know? Right. And, and that, I can totally see why if you live like that as a, and you are a man, you look at yourself mm-hmm. at some point and you go, this is just not working. Right. But that's not all of them. That's not, you know, the ones who are posting their genitalia through letterboxes. No, and it's not no. the ones who are, you know, hard-charging CEO, fighter pilot, top, uh, you know, games designer type people. And those people are harder to understand why somebody like that might say, I was always meant to be a woman. You look at them and you think, like, not to go on stereotypes here, but you're not actually very like the women I know. You're actually really different. Right. Like, what about you is making you think? that there's a woman inside. So anyway, Blanchard did a lot of studies and anyone who wants to say that his work is discredited or that it's not right should go back and read the papers because the methodology was fantastic. And they should also go and read a collection of testimonies of of, um, trans people by Anne Lawrence, who is herself a trans woman. 
And they should also have a look on Amazon for so-called sissy porn, which is pornography that is aimed at men who find the idea of being forcibly turned into woman the most erotic thing imaginable. The fact is that there is a subset of men for whom the idea of being a woman is the sexiest thing there is. And those men cross-dress, 3% of men are erotic cross-dressers, and a small number of them, a small number of that 3%, that female persona becomes more and more and more real. And it feels like their most loving and important relationship. And often by the time they're in their 40s, everything else feels uh, small and stale in comparison. And they transition. So that's called autogynophilia, which is a term that Blanchard created. He really wasn't the first person to notice this phenomenon. He's very careful to say that. He was the first person to give a really solid evidence base for this division into two types, like homosexual, transsexuals, he called one group. That's the the men who are so hyper-feminine that they feel happier just living as women, and they're gay, as in they're attracted to men. And the other group who are men who are in love with, and I don't mean this in a nasty way, they, they're, it, it's hard to understand if you're not one of these people. Yeah. But the woman inside is somebody that they love and feel sexually towards and eventually wish to express. The trouble is that that expression almost automatically imposes upon women. I mean, it's once you move from cross-dressing in private or perhaps with your wife or perhaps with sexual partners, which is completely fine, nothing to do with me. You know, I, I'm, I don't care about other people's sex lives. As long as the people with you are fine with it, fine. Once it comes out into the world, there's no fun doing it if you can't go into women's spaces and if you can't force other people or at least persuade other people to go along with the fact that you're a woman. So that's where the clash is. These men are not content with cross-dressing privately. They want to come out and get the whole world to join in the role play. And they're quite hard charging men, some of them. And so, you know, no is not really an acceptable answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there we are. That to me is the central clash. That's the thing that has made this so extremely poisonous, that there is a group of men whose entire happiness and sex drive is bound up in the performance of a female role in public that all the rest of us are told there's no choice but to play along with. And what percentage of the autogynophilia folks actually do the whole hormonal, the hormonal treatments and the actual radical surgeries? Is there a number on that? Or is that just typical of just, I'm going to dress and feel better, but I'm going to stay biologically yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we know that, you know, the number of um, full genital surgeries is not that high, even now after okay. a large increase. And I mean, you know, that 3% number is, is probably an underestimate, in fact, for the number of men who, whose sexual gratification is wrapped up in cross-dressing. And, you know, loads of those men are just happy doing this privately. Or, right, right. As I say. So, so there's a continuum, I would say, from men who are perfectly happy being men, you know, but just do enjoy putting on a woman's... I'm, I'm sorry, we, we, I, I've turned into someone who spends her time talking about penises and the like. But anyway, puts on a dress and masturbates. So, so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that you're so totally obsessed and engrossed in this idea of yourself that you cannot be happy until you've undergone a full body modification. And the number of people traveling along that trajectory obviously depends on what the culture is doing. Because there's no point in doing the whole bodily modification and so on if nobody's going to play along. If everyone else is going to say, yeah, well, fine, but you're still a man. 
But in the last five to 10 years, it's become very stigmatized to say to a man who doesn't want to be seen as a man that actually he is a man. Right. And so it's becoming more attractive. We're, we're creating a world in which it's more attractive to transition. So I suppose that's a long answer. We don't have figures. Nobody's collecting the figures. Um, it's probably a small share actually undergo genital surgery just because there's not that many surgeons who do it. It's a pretty complex operation. Also, of course, it makes you sterile and uh, takes away your main sex organ. Um, it's, <laughs> But loads more will be taking hormones because that's quite easy. Right. And it's just part of a fantasy in a way. Right. Well, thanks. That helps. So the one thing I did not know, and I don't know how I didn't know this, <laughs> but you, were, and, and I may be the only person you've ever talked to that didn't get this, but your chapter three was, my name is Neo. Oh, no, you're and, not the only person. Loads okay. of people. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that movie, you know, 20 years ago, or whenever it came out. And then after I read your book, I watched it again. With my 10-year-old, which my wife wasn't overly happy about because that scene where he kind of you know, rebirths was a little creepy and weird, but he loved the movie. And what I didn't know is I thought you did a really good job of bringing that to the fore, at least. Obviously, I'm not the only one, but can you talk a little bit about, well, specifically the movie itself? And I didn't know the Wachowski brothers actually were both trans, and that was the whole allegory of the movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Just, why don't you tell our listeners about that? I would just, it was, so, I so was gobsmacked. Yeah. I had to try to find a way to explain to people. So people, people who aren't in, into this topic and haven't noticed yeah. things over the past five to yeah. 10 years commonly don't understand that what they're being told is that your gender identity is more real than your sexed body. Right. So they assume right that everyone else agrees with them that, of course, sex is real, of course, sex bodies are real, but some people are so unhappy or they have a medical condition or something, so they need to undergo maybe some surgery or something like that, and then the rest of us must be kind to them. That's the sort of the understanding that's out there. And I'd be, I'd be fine with that. That's completely fine. Like, if there's, some, if there's a few people who are very distressed, of course, we try to accommodate them. But the ideology that's got created it is not that. The ideology sees all of us as coming with something like a gender identity. And it's inside us and it's like a sexed soul. It's, and it's the thing that makes us what we are. So the reason that they would say I'm a woman isn't because, you know, the little egg met the little sperm and it turned into a little female, um, you know, fertilized egg and it grew into a woman, which is what I think. Like, I think I'm a woman just because I'm female. And I think there's right. no way I could not be a woman. There's no, there's nothing I can do that casts me out of womanhood or anything like that. They think that what makes me a woman is my gender identity. And that if that gender identity was in your body, I would be just as much a woman. So what you, you believe. Just, what, you, yeah, this, what you believe. Yeah, what you believe yeah. is what you say. Yeah. So I was trying to get across to readers, you know, because this, I'm sorry, this is so, it's so religious that people can't really understand why you know that that's what people are saying and then I had a chance to cross um oh I think it was somebody pointing out that the Wachowski brothers as they had been when they made the matrix because we haven't actually said the name of the film we're talking about up till now it's the matrix you're right <laughs> you. 21 years old this year um that the matrix that the Wachowski brothers had both transitioned and they're now the Wachowski sisters and they have said that it's a trans allegory so I look back at it and work my way through the film. And it's a good way to understand that if you buy into this whole ideology, this world that we're in, 
that you and I are sitting in, both of us staring at computer screens. It's not the real world. That's the matrix. That's the that's the fake yeah. world. And inside that world, there are real, <clears throat> real people. And those real people are the ones that are plugged in in the film. Like you remember that they yeah. they're being used as battery sources for the the um the machines. And then you can go through the movie and you can pick out all the tropes of trans um, activism, trans uh, discourse. So, for example, um, if you remember the guy who says that he wants to be plugged back into the Matrix because it's all miserable. Yes. Um, so he's a detransitioner. Okay. And because he wants to go back into the fake world. He wants, to, he wants to give up his true self and go back into the easier version of things. So if you're a trans activist, that's what you think a detransitioner is. You think they're a trans person who just can't face the transphobia of this world and, you know, just decides to go back and live as an inauthentic self. Now, that's not how I think of, of detransitioners, but there you go. And then the most interesting of the, the trans allegory things is you probably remember the character called Switch. So she's a woman who dresses in white. She's yeah. the only one who dresses in white, very striking, and she dies in the film. So she was written as an actual trans character. She was written to be male. I can't remember which way around. I think it was male in the matrix and female unplugged. And okay. the idea was that this was to be a computer glitch. So I don't know. I mean, they, 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 they had this idea, the, the, the studio vetoed it, and then they didn't change the script or the direction by even one jot. So the first time that um, Neo goes into the training mate, the training simulation with Switch, he does this double take. And the idea is that that was meant to be the other sex, the sex that he hadn't seen this person in, a different actor. And that's why Switch is dressed. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember that that, Yeah, that's why Switch is dressed in white. It was to be a visual cue that those two people were the same person. And then Switch dies inside the Matrix and her last words are, not like this, not like this. The point being she's died in the wrong body. She's died in the fake body in the Matrix. That's the wrong sex. And that's meant to be trans erasure and death. So, so that was the point. Like up till then, I was like, mm, is this really a metaphor for trans? Is this just a way you're dressing up the, you know, a very good film that I liked a lot of the time and have watched several times since. But no, it's really meant to be a metaphor for the trans experience, that there are real selves, our real selves are somewhere else. And we declare those real selves. Like the way Neo says, my name is Neo. He's declaring he's not Mr. Anderson. And when he fights with the forces of transphobia, namely the agents, they keep calling him Mr. Anderson, which is like dead naming a a trans person. He he takes on his true self by saying, my name is Neo and fighting back. That's him asserting his trans identity. So yeah, it's the whole way through the film. Yeah, no, it it was very helpful on two fronts. I, because I had it in my brain, it was one of those things where specifically my audience, and I think just as a group, you know, San Francisco, New York, very progressive areas of our country. Well, I grew up in Minnesota. If you had a trans conversation with any of my relatives, most of my relatives and friends from high school are small C conservative or Trumpers, and they're not going to buy into this at all. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. I've had conversations with some of them already, my mother included, um, who doesn't even understand the conversation. So this was, for me, I thought, a really cool way, and obviously you thought the same thing, of introducing what this phenomenon is all about in the sense that the matrix itself is us and the gender identification 
of where I feel is actually more important. It's bigger than the world in which I live in, which is fake. And so now I need you, everyone else, to understand that my world, the way I see it, is actually bigger or supersedes the real world. And so exactly. you guys have to you guys have to conform to us. Yes, and so exactly, exactly. That's the weird thing for me. And that's actually to your point. You have been it, riddled through this book numerous times. You're saying, I am not addressing this to trans people. I have empathy for trans people. I will call them by their pronouns. This is not about that. This is about the ideology. This is about the activism, yeah. specifically as a feminist. And that is the one thing that, you know, we talked about this off camera, but a lot of the, and I don't know if you can categorize yourself in this, but the second wave feminists are the people that have spent decades of suffragists to delineate what it means to be, and you guys actually as a group came up with the word gender, no? I mean, it was like- Yeah, I mean, I think it was already, yeah, to some but degree. I mean, you kind of yeah. reframe that word so that you could delineate between the patriarchy and the females and where we need to go as a culture to bring us closer together as a group. And that's, that's the one thing that I've had numerous conversations with, specifically with my progressive friends, when I say, you know, you guys may say this is all about being fair and harm, you know, because those are the two windows, I think, that most liberals look through everything, mm -hmm. you know, whereas a conservative would be looked through something like sanctity and order and, you know, and so like as, and you mentioned this in your, in your book too, the postmodernist lens, which a lot of, you know, the Derrida's and the Foucault's of the world, those are these like the French philosophers that came up and just started to blow apart binaries, right? Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. meta narratives and things of, of canonical data. And like, this doesn't exist. This doesn't exist. And that's a big piece of the movement that I've seen. And that to me is not just within you know, trans ideology, it's also within critical race theory. And it's interesting that all the different theories out there are trying to like poke holes in binaries. And I think yeah. that's where it gets really difficult. And I think this movie did a really good job of categorizing that. So again, kudos for you, because I, I really well, it's thought interesting. that people really, people really split into two on that. So a lot of my feminist friends thought that that was just a total detour, because it's not a film they watched or a film they liked. And yeah. then, you know, some philosophers or blokes said, um, that was the only, the only chapter I actually liked in the book, to be honest. I didn't want to read all that stuff about what's going on in schools, but, you know, I was riveted by the fact that this film <laughs> I liked had a second meaning to it. So, so yeah, I mean, it's just another way to look at it, isn't it? I mean, the, the postmodernist yeah. thing, I, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a trained philosopher. I do now have some friends who are, and they, they assure me that people like Derrida and Foucault are saying more useful and helpful things than this sort of flattened, kind of tumblerized version of them that's that's now common in social activism. These are not stupid people, they're subtle people. And what they were saying is that, you know, many things that you think are natural are not natural. And that's true. That's really true. So, so people thought it was natural that men were leaders and, you know, that women should stay in the home. They thought it was, you know, if right. you look back, um, you know, a century or more, they'll tell you that things were natural about race or, um, yeah, loads of things like that, natural about sexuality. And they're saying to you, think again, think about the way, the extent to which these things are socially constructed. Think about the way that you have said, because there are two categories, they must be opposites. So a binary isn't just two things. A binary is two things that have been set up, not just in opposition, but in hierarchy. Correct. So if you think about male and female, I mean, I, I just think male and female are just 
They're just objective categories. And I can't explain evolution without male and female. Male and female created evolution and is a big part of the process. So Darwin pointed out to us that there were two types of selection, natural and sexual. You can't explain the sexual selection without male and female. But that doesn't mean that I think the male has to be the leader and female the follower. And it doesn't mean that all these words that we've allowed to adhere to male and female, you know, man is day, woman is night, man is sun, woman is moon, man is order, woman is chaos, all of these things. That's the binary. Those things are adhered to these two natural things and turn them into something constructed. So the trouble is we've thrown baby out with bathwater here. Like, because I don't want to accept that men are the leaders and I'm the follower, or that, you know, men are rational and I'm emotional, I'm somehow meant to think that male and female are real. I want to hang on to male and female and detach these words, like rational and emotional, from the two of them. And unfortunately, that, to my mind, progressive, obvious, liberating exercise is misunderstood by almost everybody. Like conservatives hear me as saying that there are no differences between male and female. I accept that there are differences between male and female and they're hardwired, some of them. And progressives hear me as saying that I want women back in the kitchen barefoot and bearing right. right. I don't want either of those things. I want people to accept that there are male and female, care about that when it matters, don't care about it when it doesn't matter. But, you know, give women space to do the things that only women do. Give men space to do the things that only men do. Let everybody flourish. And don't say that one is better than the other. Isn't that nice? Isn't that what we should all want? And I think to some degree we've gone a long way. And because of second wave feminism, right? It's helped us understand that gender itself is a social construct. So I, I I I kind of get off that. I get off that train before I say that sentence. Okay. I should, I should say I don't tend to use the word gender except when I'm saying gender identity or gender non-conformity okay. because those are the words now and I can't change it all on my own. The word is so conflicted that it means so many things to different people that I, you know, the first thing I ask somebody is what do you mean by gender? So if gender means something like the social roles that the two sexes play, I don't think that's entirely socially constructed. I think that it's fairly obvious why the social role that most women feel comfortable in has more to do with babies and children than the social role that most men feel comfortable in. I don't think that's entirely socially constructed. And I think any attempt to change it wholesale and get 50% of all nursery teachers to be men and so on is is doomed to failure. Evolution did give us things that you could call gender. It's the things on top of that. It's the, and it's wrong if you don't want babies. Or right. the, you know, pink is for girls and blue is for boys. Those things are nonsense. That bit of gender is nonsense. But I don't think that social roles are entirely constructed. I don't think that we can just turn everybody into, you know, a mishmash that you can't actually tell the difference between men and women from anything except their bodies. A friend of mine once said to me that she said, um, you know, the trans activists think that um, evolution worked only from the neck up. And the radical yeah. feminists think that it only worked from the neck down. And so I don't think either of those things. I think evolution worked on our minds, our brains, our um, tastes, our aptitudes, our interests, um, also our bodies. Like I think the same thing that gave me wider hips than men have, that you know enabled me to um, carry a baby inside me for nine months, that thing also gave me quite a considerable interest in babies. Mm-hmm. And again, plenty of women aren't interested in babies. But if you look at women and men, there's a pretty firm pattern there. And you'd be astonished if there wasn't, wouldn't you? I mean, these things are bloody hard. Yeah. 
You know, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's actually part of, I actually open up a lot of debates online with saying, can we agree on what the word means first? Yes, yes. And, and if we do, then find, that helps. I don't find it a debate. useful word anymore. You know, I just find there's just too many things that people, and then as soon as you say, well, look, you know, if gender means women being more interested in babies than men, I think there's gender. But if you think that it means women have to be interested in babies, I don't agree with or that. Or wear dresses. Yeah, and that, yes. I think that, that's because there's a woman named Carol Hooven. <clears throat> she's the yes, she's evolutionary. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I loved her book. And she, yeah. along with every evolutionary biologist I've ever read, Brett Weinstein, same thing. His wife, uh, Heather Heyer, same thing. Everything that these people talk about as evolutionary biologists is there is no binary specific to what you talked about. It's not that all men think this way. Yeah. It's that there are certain things, like men are attracted to things more so than you know, uh, women are attracted to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was people, one of the weaker right? ones. It I is. Right? It, but it's, they talk about that. Everything's on a yeah. continuum in that sense. I mean, so that's where. People, how can people think that there isn't something called gender when you look at the statistics for crime? Now, your, your, oh, classic, yeah. your classical radical feminist, second wave feminist will say that men are socialized to be more violent. Well, how come that's happened in absolutely every society that we've ever known of anywhere in the world and that it's not marginal? It's not like the difference between men and women or right. things and, uh, you know, things and people. Like, in this country, I got the figures for, um, for, for people in jail, 88,000 of whom 4,000 are women. And if you look at the crimes, 20% of the men, it's uh, sexual crimes, 4% of the women. You know, the women are overwhelmingly in jail for not non-payment of a fine, um, repeated prostitution or shoplifting. That's nearly all of them. Okay. And the men, you know, they fight outside pubs. They rape people. Right. They, you know, yeah, they're just much they more... They start wars. Much more criminal. They start wars, yes. And yeah, of course, I do think that socialisation plays a part because different cultures have very different warlikeness you know if you're in south sudan a man who isn't warlike is just not going to survive but you know you can be quite uh, you know you can be a man and never hit anybody here in, in england and that's great so culture obviously plays a part but wherever you are men are much more violent much more aggressive than women and that and okay that's partly again because women are physically weaker if i walked around the place starting off like your average gang member I just get punched in the face within about two minutes and I wouldn't be able to do anything about it either because upper body strength is a big difference but then that's a circular argument the way you have to understand evolution is, if, is that everything about the way your body is and everything about the way my body is has been shaped by evolution so why is your upper body strength so very much greater than mine because you have to fight because men have to fight when women don't right so, so that's two ways. They have stronger bodies. You, you have stronger bodies, so you fight more. But you have you, you have stronger bodies because you fight more. Correct. Well, that's actually where Carol Hooven got into it, specifically testosterone in natal, because that actually affects your brain and how it works. Yeah. Then you have two months out of birth, you get rushed with thirty times the amount of testosterone that a, a girl does. Then at puberty, same thing, twenty to thirty times, big hits. Of testosterone and then one more little pop before your 21st birthday ish so those are those four pieces yes. that actually do at an evolutionary level alter your body biologically and i think that's the biggest discussion even specific to sports yes right so if you look at the difference and, and obviously we i would like to get into that because we get 
your rugby analogy is, is I think was wonderful because it really talks to something we don't really have here in the United States, which is, and I, you, I'll let you talk about this, but the rugby, the World Rugby Association or Foundation or whatever it may be actually has referees and governors and doctors who are somewhat on the hook for yes, that's right. the, the injuries of its athletes as a whole, right? And yeah. so that's not something we have here. The NFL doesn't care if you get hurt. It's just part of it. It's just you're going to get hurt because you're out there. What they do have, which I thought was a really neat delineation, and I can't remember who said it, but he said, you know, ballroom dancing is a contact sport. Rugby is a collision sport. So that's a quote from Honika Meyer, who's a okay. famous South African coach. Yeah, that's yes. right. So if you don't mind it, it, me just doing this, before we start on sport, I want to say one more thing about gender, which is to draw it back to that discussion about um, the link with homosexuality. So if you think about those boys, those little boys who were called sissy boys, and then you think about the girls in other studies who, you know, tore out any hair clips and refused to wear dresses and said they wanted to play rugby and that they wanted to be firefighters and things like that. These kids are expressing what looks like the gender norms of the opposite sex. And what people used to know and have almost deliberately forgotten is that gay people are highly gender non-conforming. So every homophobe in the world knows this, like every dad who wants his son not to grow up gay knows very, very well that if he looks at the three-year-old who's borrowing his big sister's tutu and saying, I want to do ballet, he thinks, shit, I've got a gay son. Mm -hmm. And like we're somehow meant to pretend that's not the case. So that to me also suggests that interest in certain gender norms it is hardwired because we know we know that being gay is at least to a large extent hardwired. There's mm-hmm. several, really a large number of studies that show that at this point that, you know, in men especially, um, being gay is set either at conception or in the womb or at least early in life, largely. But those are also the kids who are notably feminine in their tastes and styles. So the two things are connected. Yeah. Um, So somebody listening to me might say, oh, my God, she believes in gender identity. I don't at all. I believe that the norms that are associated with the two sexes are provably and demonstrably not entirely socially constructed. And I believe that among the ways that gay people are are not conforming to the standard for their sex, well, one of them is obviously that they fancy. They they, they desire their sex, not the opposite sex. That's the most gender non-conforming thing you can do. But along with that, they're also interested in things that are more standard for the opposite sex. I think it's a big scandal, actually, that this transitioning of kids is mostly happening to gay kids. So if you think about it, if you were were, uh, an anthropologist from Mars and you landed on this planet, you would notice that especially in America and Canada, there's large-scale sterilization of gay kids happening right now because the protocols in gender clinics lead to sterility. And the kids who are turning up in gender clinics are really hugely disproportionately kids who would otherwise grow up gay. And that is actually why I wrote the book. It was when I first met detransitioners, every single one of them was gay. Every single one of them had misinterpreted their gender nonconformity as meaning that they were meant to be the opposite sex. And some of them had been sterilized. There were girls who had had hysterectomies at age 21. And so I just thought, you know, this is at the level of the worst medical scandals we've ever seen. This is at the level of lobotomies. We are sterilizing gay kids. 
on that cheerful note, should we talk about sport? <laughs> Your choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I want to get back to, we'll get back to that because the GNRH stuff fascinates me on so many different fronts. We'll get to that. But yeah, the, the rugby piece, because that was a really big thing for me. I'm a athlete. I competed in varsity athletes as a high school kid. I fought in martial arts for years. And there's never been a discussion on this. I know, it was extraordinary. It's never happened. And so the one thing that I always point to, and, and people always say, well, what, what, what's your dog in this fight? I'm like, well, let me just use the fight as an example. I used to fight. So yeah. I hate that had, question. I really hate it. You look at an injustice <laughs> and somebody says, you know, well, why do you care about that? Why do you care? My answer, I is, my answer is, well, why don't you? Right. I, well, yes, I, that's a much bigger question. And, and it, it is kind of annoying in that sense because I was like, well, okay, fine. This is where I have a dog in the fight. I used to fight. We didn't fight women. We sparred with women, but we, we went at their pace. That was yeah. just by the Sifu, you know, hey, don't hurt. If you do, I'll hurt you. Kind yeah. Of like, Got yeah. it. And there was a famous, you know, the UFC here, um, which is the big fighting octagon and everyone, Joe Rogan stuff. There was a woman named Fallon Fox who was, did not identify it didn't, it didn't actually disclose that she was a former biological male, came in and fought in the women's category. And she beat up her opponent, one of her opponents anyway, to the point where she cr- actually crushed her skull. Yeah. And she broke her orbital socket and she caused damage and concussion and just, I mean, abused her. And the, the thing that really surprised me about that, and I even wrote it down, is... This is what she said. The young lady who fought her said, I fought a lot of women and have never felt the strength I felt in that fight. I can't answer whether it's because she was born a man or not, because I'm not a doctor. I can only say I've never felt so overpowered ever in my life. And I'm abnormally strong for a female. Yeah. Her grip was different. I can usually move around in a clinch, other females, but I couldn't move at all. And so yeah. that was an example. You're like, all right, <laughs> this is this is where, and I'm the more I've studied, and to be clear, you're an expert in this. Sir. I've done a couple hundred hours of homework, attempting to understand this so I could interview someone of your ilk and ask the right questions. So there's, the, I don't have a lot of adamacy in most of this. Fighting and competitive sports, specifically collision sports, it is unfair to all females who have to compete against a trans male. Yeah. And maybe there are sports that, you know, swimming, there's no contact, so you're just going to lose to the stronger male, but that was a huge piece. And what I liked about the rugby thing, which I thought was really unique and I already touched upon, is that the governance has liability exposure. And because of that, they did an amazing amount of homework on this, which I also loved. It was exclusively women that actually did this governance. So please talk a little bit about this because I was fascinated by this. So they... I must say they were very much um, led and driven by one particular person who's Ross Tucker, who is a top flight, like one of the world's best and most important sports scientists and sports physiologists, who is somebody who works for World Rugby. Like He does many other things too, but he's on contract to World Rugby. And some years ago, he started to think about what was going on, especially with the um, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, which is the mm-hmm. regulator that runs the Olympics. And it doesn't actually oversee all sports, but kind of what it says tends to filter down. And yeah. they were saying that um, they would allow 
male people to self-identify into women's sports. So if you go back to the early 2000s, there had been a few male athletes who had undergone the genital surgery, like it had their, their penises and their testicles removed and had a neo-vagina crafted. And those men had said that they wanted to be accepted into the women's sports. The thing is, nobody did those surgeries on people until, until they were in their 40s. So these right. men were in their, you know, they were outside their prime and there were very tiny numbers of them. The one famous one is Rennie Richards. Yeah. Yeah, the tennis player. So... I mean, it just kind of didn't come up very much at all. So they just were past their prime. Like you could say, well, they're past their prime, so why don't they compete in an age category? And that would be my solution. But anyway, it just wasn't a big issue. <laughs> right. And, so if, and also, if you have to have the surgery, so few people had the surgery and they had it so late. Then in 2015, they said you wouldn't have to have the surgery anymore. I think I've got the dates right. Um, but you would have to suppress your testosterone. Now, that doesn't actually make any difference compared to someone who's had the surgery because almost all the benefit of testosterone happens in those earlier spurts. The, the job is yep. done. Yeah. It's not the circulating testosterone that makes men stronger by and large. It's almost entirely the historic testosterone. But what it did is it meant the numbers were much larger and it meant that men at prime sporting age could become female athletes or could, become, could compete as female athletes who can't become female. So, you know, that was when Ross started to pay attention and he thought, you know, rugby has been through this near-death experience and I shouldn't have said that expression. Um, well, I leave it to stand, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound insensitive because basically what happened is people had their necks broken in rugby clinches. So they were, people nearly died. Some people did die, in fact. And rugby had been through these very painful and horrific court cases in which they had been found liable in several ways. And in particular... If you run a sport in the UK, and I think this is probably true in other places too, if you change the rules in a way that increases noticeably and measurably and predictably increases the risk for people playing it, you're going to be held liable. So he thought, you know what? I think we, that's great. Yeah, I think, he, yeah, I mean, you know, rugby is inherently a dangerous sport. So you do sign saying that you accept those risks going onto the pitch, but it is the job of the rugby regulators and referees to constantly yeah. get to monitor and mitigate those risks. So changing the rules to make the risks higher is a real no-no. So you see this in a really tiny example, and there was enormous debate about whether you would allow people to wear goggles while playing rugby. Obviously, you can't keep your glasses on while you're playing. So the idea would be that people who had needed you know, significant sight correction would be able to get prescription goggles. But then you worry about a collision in which the goggle goes into someone else's eye or right. something like that. So they spent ages talking about that, like whether that would be a rule that would make the game less safe. At the same time as the IOC is saying, you know what? If a male person wants to suppress his testosterone for a year, he should be allowed to compete as a female. And Ross thought, uh-oh. And he did a big edu internal education campaign within World Rugby that culminated in this excellent workshop that they did over a weekend shortly before the pandemic started, in which I think he was one of only a couple of men. So there was him and there was a lawyer who was a man and nearly everybody else was a woman. They got, you know, women who were experts, women who were ex-players and so on, because the yeah. IOC decision was made by men. It was a bunch of men. Right. All men. Yeah, all men, I think, yeah. but nearly all men. And plus Joanna yeah. Harper is a trans woman who's therefore male. So it was a bunch of male people getting together to say what female sports should accept. And Ross didn't want to do that, and neither did World Rugby. And the result they came out with was they recommended that you do not allow male people to play in female rugby. And astonishingly and dangerously, a number of national regulators have disagreed with them, have said that that's transphobic. 
So since then, here in Britain, um, a body that's a sports council for all the regulators brought out this excellent piece of work. It isn't in a position to tell people what to do. But what it did is it worked through all the evidence and it says that when it comes to women's sports, you have a choice and you cannot combine both of these things. You have to choose between them. One of them is you can be fair to female athletes. The other one is that you're going to allow male athletes to identify into the female category. You cannot do both. If you allow male athletes to to identify into the female category, you are being unfair and possibly unsafe for the females. Incredibly, a load of the regulators said, yeah, we'll have that one, thanks. And the first one, the first one to choose the unfairness one was kickboxing. Kickboxing. Like so dangerous. So yeah, they said, you know, this is transphobic. We're completely fine. We're continuing with trans inclusion. They've literally just been told with chapter and verse on the evidence that that's neither fair nor safe for females. Well, I didn't read that. That's really surprising to me because there is no more contact. Yeah, there's no more contact sport than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, or that's a collision sport. That is a purposeful match to take the other person out. So if I may um, give your listeners uh, an explanation about the sex differences thing, um, it's often flattened down into strength. And indeed, strength is a big difference between men and women. But it's different for different parts of the body. So men's legs are much stronger than women's legs. um, But men's upper body strength is really much more than women's. And the single biggest sex difference is on punching power. So there was a test done of randomly selected um, males and females, and they got them both to punch as hard as they could. And the very, very strongest one was weaker than the very, very weakest men. So they are literally almost non-overlapping punching power. Because the thing is, punching combines several aspects of upper body strength. Like it's your shoulders, it's your back, Mm -hmm. it's under your chest, it's your arms, it's your fists, your legs, whole lot. So it's everything combined. It all comes together in punching. So on punching, there's just almost no overlap between men and women. But then it's not just strength. It's a bunch of other things too. So women are made um, in a way that has to allow us obviously to give birth. We have to carry babies and give birth. And that's a demand that's not put on men's bodies. And it requires some um, physiomotor compromises, you might call them. So women's hips are wider than they would be if we didn't have to get a baby's head to pass through. And that's very inefficient. Women's gait is much less efficient than men's. So if you look at the alignment of a woman's body, the hips come out, then the knees come in, and then the legs go out a bit. And the the result, to a quite startling extent, is that force is not transmitted in in as efficient a way through from the body through to the legs, through the feet and back up again. And another difference is that women are much more flexible than men. Again, that's related to childbirth so that things can move. Um, and, but being more flexible means being less strong because a tendon that's more flexible doesn't store power as well and doesn't allow especially explosive power. Right. So yeah, so there's, there's just, they're just very different body types, more different than they look from the outside, I have to say. I was surprised at how big the sex differences were when I looked. And I thought, you know what? I had an eight pound, nine month old baby inside me twice. You know, <laughs> I said I was infertile earlier, so I should explain to um, your, your, your listeners that um, unexplained infertility, IVF worked. So yeah, but anyway, I've done this thing that no male body ever has to accommodate. And it, I ha- my body has paid a price in, um, you know, optimization for sporting activities. Yeah. And that's just obvious. And nobody had to say that until recently. And it's surreal to me now. Yeah, no, that's that's actually very surprising for me too, because as an athlete, I've always known that. 
And your numbers were statistically relevant to the book. It was 95% upper body strength for men. Yes, for sure. okay. 65% in legs. That's it extra. Was so in case, in case extra. you really think, yeah, so a man is 95% stronger than women in upper body strength, nearly double. Yeah. And 65% in legs and 162% in punching power. That was your, which is yeah. again, I was like, okay, that sounds about right. And then bigger than that, and this was the Leah Thomas thing here in the United States. She's not in a contact sport. So it wasn't the same. It wasn't like she's going to hurt her competitors. But the same thing stands true to your point around biological actual differences, evolutionary biology, specifically bigger hands, bigger feet, faster twitch muscle, bigger lung capacity, bigger heart, bigger bone density. Everything's different. Yeah. Everything's yeah. different. And so that's, yeah. that's to me where I think this discussion shows its divisiveness. Because these are actual facts, biologically, whether you want to get into the terminology, you're not sounding important, male, female, different, very, very, very different. And it should be different. And so like, the fact that that's not recognized, I fear for the kickboxing in the future if they continue that. Because yeah, I they, watched... won't, they won't continue. They will not. They can't. They're, they're going to have they're going to have people really hurt. Yeah, but that's not really why. Hurt. I mean, they, they've shown themselves willing to have women hurt. This is the most divisive issue on trans things is sport. I don't think it should be, by the way. I mean, I care a lot about sport. I come from a very, very strong sporting family. I have a brother and a sister, both of whom are retired, but were professional athletes in the same sport, cricket. So I know a lot about sport and I know a lot about the way that men's and women's sports differ, both in terms of the physiology, but also in terms of the funding and the respect and the opportunities, you know? Oh, that's true. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.